Tonight's extra classy edition of Star Trek Monthly Monday is brought to you by published Star Trek author Michael Poteet. You can read Mike's short story, The First Law of Metaphysics, in Star Trek Strange New Worlds 2. You can still pick this up on your favorite ebook provider. You know, you could actually even get it through the Two True Freaks Amazon link. On behalf of Two True Freaks, we'd like to thank Mike Petit for the money, but more than that, we'd like to thank him for the gravitas. And Chris Honeywell. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Monthly Monday number 37, the 1701 edition. That means the original series. I am Chris Honeywell and I am here with my best friend and fellow Star Trek nerd, Scott Gardner. Yes. And we are ready to go because... It's the beginning of 2012, and we're finally back on format. We've been having some fun with the Star Trek Monthly Mondays. But now, we'll no more honest. fun. We've been damn lazy is what we've been. <laughs> and now is now is the time. Well, lazy, come on. It was a riot watching, doing a commentary for generations, and, yeah. and finally like actually having an opportunity to say nice things about it. But, uh, you know, now, now we're back into the, the familiar. And this one, you know, we did a sort of short Star, Star Wars Monthly Monday this month. But this is going to be a, uh, just, the, just the Star Trek Monthly Monday you've come to know and love in the format exactly as we've been doing it. We're, yeah. So it's – I'm looking forward we'll have, to it. We'll have an episode and we'll talk about a funny book too. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe even other things thrown in you never, never know. Hell, we hardly even know <laughs> what we're <laughs> going to talk about. But, uh, yeah, I don't really have much uh, outside Star Trek news 
this this month, other than I've I dug up a couple of my uh, uh, Star Trek T-shirts that I forgot that I had, including an Insurrection T-shirt and a First Contact T-shirt. Oh, cool! Insurrection one we've been talking about doing a commentary for a long time, and and First Contact one we did a a show on a while ago, or me and Shag did a a show. I I forgot that I even had a first. It has a glow in the dark. No, actually, it's not that one. I've got one that just says Borg, and it's got a glow-in-the-dark. What was his? Was Picard's name Locutus or Locutus? Locutus, yeah. Locutus. It's got a um, glow-in-the-dark picture of Locutus on the front That's of cool. it. And it just says Borg, you know, um, resistance is futile on the back of it. That's a that's a honest-to-God, aged, battle-weary, you know, Vintage T-shirt. It's beautiful. I didn't. You know, I was... didn't age it into that. I got it in that condition. But... <laughs> it was totally unplanned, but uh, I actually turn out to be wearing a Star Trek shirt at the moment. I didn't even think about it till this very moment when you said something about Star Trek shirts. I was like, "Hey, wait a minute! I have a Star Trek T-shirt on. I have my uh, Ten Reasons Why Kirk is Better Than Picard T-shirt on." <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I only try to give. Well, you know, during during the uh, the next gen episode that we'll be doing after this and releasing after that, you know, I, I should, in all fairness, give equal time, and I should also have a shirt or maybe like a reversible T shirt that would be ten reasons why Picard is better than Kirk. But the problem is, there it's, aren't any reasons. So <laughs> it would just be a blank T shirt. I can go switch to a, a plain white T shirt. I guess that would work. No, no. I should actually have that T-shirt made. Ten reasons why Picard is better than Kirk, and then it's just blank. There's just like a line underneath it where the ten reasons should be, but there's not any reasons. I think that would make a good T-shirt, don't you? That would be a funny. Maybe that. Maybe that's a future Two True Freaks T-shirt. When, when, when we sell, when we sell out of the old ones, we'll. Uh, <laughs> that's we'll not a bad idea up. at all. We're going to sell out of those ones any day, so we're going to need more T-shirts here pretty soon. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you just want to dive right in. I really don't have anything as far as preamble either. I have been reading some Star Trek, but I've been reading uh, those Titans books. Actually, I'll be talking about one in our Next Gen episode, but that's, that's Next Gen. That's not original series. I have been slowly continuing to make my way through that um that omnibus that I got that's the the Captain Pike adventures and that's good stuff but it's been slow going I've been so busy with work and then just projects for the show and stuff I just haven't had time to really uh to read all the way through it like I wanted but what I've read so far I have been enjoying very much I'll have a report on it eventually when I'm all finished with it and uh, I'll talk about it a little bit but that'll be down the road that's pretty much all I got I'm ready to jump into this one what do you think yes hell yeah Once the asteroid has been diverted... That may be hours from now. In that case, everyone on this planet will die, including the captain. Lock all phases on that mark. You lost for us, you lost for that planet, and you lost for Jim. We are your people. We've been waiting for you to come to us. I say he must prove he is a god. Many things are strange to me. (laughs) Miramani, come here. (laughs) 
your child. I cannot permit this joining. You are a god. All right. So this time around, we are looking at, and this is one that we actually chose rather than letting the uh, random number generator choose for us. We, we kind of got on a, a kick, you'll remember, a while back we were, we were talking about uh, the loves of James T. Kirk and things like that. And we decided after our uh, epic examination of City on the Edge of Forever, which if you have not heard that episode, go back and listen to it. I think it was uh, really, really good. We were talking about Edith Keeler and everything, and it got us thinking about uh, another love of Kirk's, who was uh, Miramani. So we're going to examine that episode. This is an episode called The Paradise Syndrome. And also, don't forget, in Generations was also that, what was her name, Octavia or whatever. But that was what, uh, that, yeah. that's sort of what got us talking about it. So we had sort of those, right. those two, like, right on top of each other. So they just sort of begged the question of Miramonte or the issue of Miramonte. Uh, yeah, it's uh, not a, it's um, Olivia. It's something with an O. Antonia. 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 Yeah, I was like, what was that name? I was I trying to remember. It wasn't what with it was. an O. <laughs> um, now I get a kick out of the fact that the original working title for this episode was "The Pale Face," which I'm like, ooh, that was very badly today. But there was a movie that Shatner was in that was a western, where he was like a white Indian. Do you know the one I'm talking? I can't remember what the name of the movie was. I meant to look this up today, but I I totally forgot. I got busy with so much other stuff. I, I totally forgot. I actually did, believe it or not, I did prep for four shows today. Uh, no, actually five shows if I count the uh, Back to the Bins that I recorded earlier today. So, But I'm trying to see if it's mentioned here in the notes in the... Uh, Star Trek compendium I'm looking at, but I don't see it here. So maybe it, that movie was actually made after this book was written or something. But I swear there was a, a movie or a TV show or TV movie or something that Shatner starred in where he was a white Indian. And uh, I want to say the name of that was something like it wasn't the pale face, but it was something like the the, the pale Indian pale or, rider or something like the, that. The, yeah, something like that. Except Pale Rider was a Clint Eastwood movie, I think. Right. <laughs> um, so anyway, this episode is called The Paradise Syndrome. And I was shocked as I was looking, trying to find these on my Star Trek DVDs. I was shocked to find this is a third season episode. I always remembered this to be a second season episode. But nope, this one's actually right in the third season. Right at the beginning and yeah, watching it again, it actually does feel a lot like a third season episode, but not like that quintessential awful third season episode. <laughs> Just like, you know, it has a little of that third season weirdness and wackiness to it, especially like yes. some of the music and stuff. But um, this was always one of Randy's favorite episodes. I wish we could have got him in for this because this had some really good quotes that, uh, that Randy <laughs> used ad nauseum yes. come from this episode, which we'll talk about. This one originally aired uh, October 4th, 1968. I was creeping up on being six months old in uh, October of 1968, yeah. early October. So the synopsis on this from the uh, Star Trek compendium says, On a beautiful Earth-like planet, which is threatened by a collision with a huge asteroid, Kirk and company discover peaceful tribesmen 
uh, greatly akin to American Indians. Near the village is a huge obelisk covered with incomprehensible writing. As Kirk explores this structure, he falls through a trapdoor and is, is exposed uh, to a strange ray that render, renders him unconscious. McCoy and Spock fail to find him and are forced to leave him on the planet while the Enterprise attempts to destroy the asteroid. Kirk revives, afflicted with partial amnesia, space amnesia. Mm. It's the second time. Yeah. <laughs> space amnesia this month. And is accepted by the Indians who revere him as a god. Well, they should. I mean, come on, it's Shatner. You should revere him as a god. The Enterprise, attempting to fracture the asteroid with high-power phaser beams, damages its, en its engines and is forced to proceed uh, the asteroid back to the planet, traveling at sublight speed. The journey takes several months, during which Kirk has fallen in love with and married the beautiful priestess Miramani. Meanwhile, Spock deciphers the writings on the obelisk, what, uh, which his tricorder had recorded, and learns that an ancient race called the Preservers had seeded the planet with its population and provided an asteroid deflector, which is housed within the obelisk. Kirk, who is now uh, known as Medicine Chief Kirok, has no idea how to activate the obelisk. <laughs> Spock McCoy beam down just as Kirk and Miramani are being stoned by the frightened tribesmen. Hey, Amen. <laughs> I knew you were going to say it. You know, you know, <laughs> we were watching the episode. And there hey, was the Kirok, come here, man. Try this. There was part toward the end of the episode where Miramani's dying. And, it, you know, I mean, it's not at all a, a comedy moment. It's actually pretty heartbreaking and sad. Yeah. And Logan turned from the screen, and he wasn't sure what exactly. I think he came in at the wrong moment or something. And he said, what's wrong with her? And I said, she was stoned. And he just had this look like, that can kill you? <laughs> just, they told me in school I, it was bad for you, but I didn't say you dropped dead. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I re realized what I said, and I started giggling. <laughs> she wasn't stoned, man. She was rocked. And she was rocked, yes. They, <laughs> they rocked her like a hurricane. The world. Yeah, that's, that's, I was avoiding that one. <laughs> so anyway, the asteroid is deflected, and Kirk's memory is restored, but the pregnant Miramani dies along with Kirk's unborn child. I want now, a rock! I to, <laughs> to continue just a little bit in here, because I found this next part to be very interesting. This is the story outline of this episode called The Pale Face, indicated that this planet was located in a meteor, an asteroid belt, and was the only world in the region that contained life. The asteroid deflector was originally presented as a totem pole covered with hieroglyphics. Kirk's amnesia was brought about by a head wound, which led to the captain's uh, confused mental state. Spock, unable to destroy the asteroid, beamed down to evacuate the Indians. Kirk, or Kirok, uh, perceived the landing party as enemies. Spock stunned his captain and returned him to the Enterprise, transporting him up along with the Indian population. The Indians had to be sedated aboard the ship. It was the first time they had ever, uh, they were ever in such confined areas. Kirk's memory was restored when he realized that he was fighting his friend Spock. The deflector mechanism was hidden in a vast underground area in a cavern uh, the Indians said was inhabited by a spirit. The Indians, including Miramani, who survived pregnant with Kirk's child, were returned to their planet. 
not only did I think that sounds really, really interesting, especially with her surviving. It gives you a half Indian Kirk somewhere, yeah. Yeah. But a also. A man called Kirk, a man called Space Horse. <laughs> certain elements of that remind me an awful lot of an episode. And I'm trying to remember, I think it might be the one with Worf's brother, but I may be confusing episodes, but I know that there is an episode where something's going to happen to this planet or population or something, and the people end up getting beamed to the Enterprise. You know, this is Picard's Enterprise. This is a next-gen episode. And they get beamed up to the Enterprise, and they're placed into a holodeck recreation of their world. Uh... The intent was to quietly move them, you know, basically in the middle of the night when they wouldn't realize their environment had changed, transport them elsewhere, and then again, you know, beam them back down without them ever being any wiser that they basically moved planets. And then something goes wrong and they actually find out that they're that they're in an artificial world. Like, you know, you, you know the holodeck, it can't work for more than five minutes without a malfunction. Right, right. I think that's the one with Worf's brother, but I, I could be wrong. But there's elements of that, as I recall it in my memory, that actually sound very similar well, to this plot for this episode. I'm sure they, they plowed through these old, you know, old unused treatments and stuff for, for story oh, elements. Yeah. yeah, well, the one that we, first episode that we're going to look at in this month's uh, Next Generation was actually an unused script from Star Trek Phase Two. Oh, so yeah, there you go. So I, I think you've dropped enough teases for uh, the Next Gen segment for this yeah, time. Yeah, I guess around. so. What uh, What did you think of this episode? Well, as as you said before, Randy has so colored. <laughs> this episode that there were so many points in it where I was just laughing here hysterically and you know what all the points are you know Mm -hmm. all the lines are and plus the fight in it were just you know total crack ups for me but as far as Star Trek's go I so far of the season 3 episodes that we've seen this is by far the best season 3 if you know we'll see how we'll see how it turns out but this could be one of one of if not the best season three that we got there's some Ooh, i don't know that... about that i i would argue that only because yeah season three so far i'm saying definitely so, yes. it's the so, best yes, but i'm so i'm far, res- yeah. i'm leaving options open because i know actually we haven't hit a lot of season three so far yeah. we've We've been hitting very strongly in season one and two more when with the right. with the Star Trek computer. So, because you know. I'm a season three defender, because I think season three gets a lot of crap, and a lot of it is deserved. Because season three does have the the you know the it has preponderance the, of the crappy episodes. Yeah, it has a higher preponderance, but it's got some good stuff in there. Yeah, for I mean, sure. Come on, I mean, the Tholian Web is a third season episode. Uh, the Savage Curtain mm. is a is a third mm-hmm. season episode. So yeah, they're you know they're not all crap. There there's a lot of the, a lot of the worst episodes are in season three, which is what I think gives it the reputation it has. And and again, probably deservedly so. But uh, there's some good ones in there. Well, well, what I think gives this away as a season three episode is the weird voiceover of Kirk's internal thoughts when he's down in the yeah. and, and later on in the episode when he's trying to remember how to talk to the you know to get in the obelisk or trying to figure it out and stuff. 
You know, that that's definitely something that, like, all of a sudden there's voiceovers. They just start showing up in, in season three. But you know what remind you know why I, I think I like this episode th- th- so much? It reminds me of, and this was like before, like with with me and my little friends before. Like, w- once I hooked up with you, we would. It was uh, most of the time we would play when we were, you know, young enough to like, go, let's go play something. It was Star Wars, but before right. that, all I had was Star Trek to go play with my friends. And this episode, in in season three, maybe a lot of uh, it, uh, season three is like this of like kid play. Um, of Star Trek. That it starts out with them like on a road, you know, they're in the woods, but you see a road. It looks like, you know, you're out in a state park somewhere. Right. And they're like it's almost it's so amazing how much like Earth this is. This is incredibly <laughs> like er, almost to the point of where it's beyond coincidence. I know, isn't it amazing? It's look and look, their Indians are exactly like Earth Indians. And that's what we and you know, that's what we had to do when we were kids because that's what we had for you know, we like I was out. I lived out in the woods when that was how. So it would be my friends and I out in the woods. Good. Hmm. This planet has trees very much like pine trees, and look at <laughs> it. Looks very much like an Earth maple tree, and and stuff like that. So third seasons remind me a lot of childhood Star Trek play. You know, cheap sets. Uh, right. Um, <laughs> stories that don't quite work out logically, <laughs> and uh, the the you know with so. I I like that. I like that. I, I and I like that they address it and say, "Oh, how earth-like is this?" you know. And and this episode actually took great pains to go like, "Oh, yes, we had what did they call them? The um preservers." You know, the the life preservers who go around the gal- <laughs> that's why, you know, all these planets look like earth cuz the preservers have gone through and and seeded them. So now that, let me that, ask that, you though, that's very convenient for the TV show. You know, that was a, a good idea for to write I, I off think, that. You know, I think you know more about this angle of Star Trek than I do. Was, was Roddenberry off the series by this point? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, he, yeah, I, I, he might have been. Because isn't that a lot of the explanation for why the third season is the way it is, is that he was gone by third season and it was basically being run by somebody else at that point? It may be. Or am I remembering my Trek history wrong? Because it's interesting you bring up the thing with the preservers because one of my big notes until I just now had that thought that maybe this will explain my note was that the note that I had was, you know, for Roddenberry being very vocal during his lifetime, about not giving any credence to the whole ancient astronaut theory, this episode sure has a hell of a lot of nods to that idea. Nods to it. It's uh, flat out states that, you know, that by the end of it, by the end of it, you, you know, and then you start thinking and, you know, I mean, this, this one also like really plays up very much like Star Wars. There's a lot of Star Wars connections in this one. If you'll, bear with me you know but it has that fate that fate of the of kirk you know being the the god of the legend and and it turns out that you know he actually is he actually is the god that comes and saves him and and it works out so you get the idea that maybe the preservers could see ahead in time so that's how they knew to set it to to where the you know, it's sort of like Close Encounters where they're like, hey, all these are musical notes and the combination of sounds 
is what opened up the ground. And that's, uh, those sounds were the words Kirk to Enterprise. Right. You know, made the door open. So, you know, they looked ahead. They probably saw Kirk there, Kirk to Enterprise. And they're like, all right, we'll use that because he'll be standing right here. We'll put the door right here. And, you know, and he did. He, he, he came and he saved them from that asteroid hitting them. You know, he, he it worked out just perfectly. He was there for just the, the right length of time because what had happened is what, what's funny was the element of the story that they sort of underplayed it but was the most important thing about this story was the reason they had survived there is and this goes back to what you were saying about the earlier version of it where they were in an asteroid field was that's why they have the, the you know their this thing to repel asteroids because and that's why they know when the sky turns dark and they shake and stuff that an asteroid's coming. So maybe the, this planet's had problems with asteroids. So the preservers have set it up. So there's a family tradition of, you know, a wise man who actually knows the secrets and knows to go into the base of the thing and and use the, the rever- you know, the repulsor beam whenever an asteroid threatens the planet, which seems to be... You know, if, if you have one of those on there, that means that might be a, a common threat to this planet. So what had happened is one of the um, wise men had died and broken the, broken the, you know, the chain. And, and the guy, I can't remember his name, but basically Space Indian Khan, you know, Kirk's uh, enemy amongst the Indians... Sasha or whatever his yeah, name was. Yeah. yeah, he was supposed to learn that, but his father died before he could teach it to him. So he doesn't know how to use the repulsor beam. So Kirk is there to, you know, and you have to assume that Salish. afterwards. Yeah, that was Salish. Salish. And you have to assume that Kirk afterwards, you know, would probably teach Salish how, how to do that in the future. And then they can pass it on, you know. So, so the the pr- see, there's one element of that that bugged me a whole lot, though, in this when I thought about it afterwards. And again, this is one of those TV things where you're not, you know, it's it's all being thrown at you so fast that you're not really supposed to dwell on it or think about it. And it's also an instance of, you know, all's well that ends well in a lot of ways. But there is one element that does bug me about this, which is, you know, for one thing, they don't know about the space deflector. That comes much later in the episode when Spock figures everything out. So at the end of the story, you know, you're left with that feeling of, oh, they saved the day. They, re- they repaired the deflector thing and everything's going to be all right with these people. They're going to be fine. End of story. You know, and they go on to the next adventure, except they didn't know about the space deflector. No, they're not supposed to even a, know. Only right, one well, person's supposed whole, to know. Well, that adds a whole different twist to this then because... There's two words that I listened for very intently in this episode, and I don't believe they're ever said, and those are prime directive. Mm -hmm. At the very beginning of the episode, you know, we've got Kirk, Spock, and McCoy watching the Indians from across that bank and being very careful not to be seen and not to pollute their culture. Now, they never call it the prime directive, but basically what they're doing is they're obeying the prime directive because they don't want to interfere with their culture. But... Doesn't the prime directive also include, I mean, as harsh as it sounds, I mean, if, you, if you're going to go die. that far, letting them die, letting nature, you know, carry through. I, I think mean, there's been a few this, stories about 
in, yeah. in that direction. I mean, this falls in the realm of natural selection, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, it sucks for them, but there is an episode. Now, granted, it's a hundred years, well, almost a hundred years removed, and it's a very different society. But in Next Gen, there's an episode where Picard and crew come across this planet that is in its death throes, and they're fully prepared to just fly off and be like, man, it sucks to be them. Yeah. And they're not going to save them. And it turns, you know, it's a whole thing that turns into, you know, through happenstance, they end up having to get involved. But I mean, they are fully prepared to just fly off and leave these people to their fate. Yet in this episode, we see spock doing everything short of sacrificing the enterprise to save these people that are never going to know he pushes everything to the absolute edge and so yeah i i love it i mean it's i, I really enjoy this episode and i like that angle of I them do too doing that but at the same rate it seems like a vast contradiction you know what i mean it, it, you know interference is interference yes so it, it it seems very strange. Well, I don't know what what do you think? I yeah, that was one thing as I was trying to figure out and and it's funny in the in in one of the well, I guess the next generation one it's not really comparable, but they're they're going to watch a planet die at at the same time or you know, or go, going to a planet that's on the way out. Are they? I don't know what I'm thinking of. I might be thinking. I mean, it's it's just, you know, it would be very hard to make that kind of call, to make that kind of decision. But all right, you know, so they they don't interfere in the sense of they never reveal themselves to the natives. They never pollute their culture. They they never change the fundamental being of who these people are. Yet, they deflect the, you know, say Spock had been successful with the deflector beam, you know, the, the Enterprise's deflector beam, or with the ship's phasers, or <laughs> why the hell didn't they ever try the photons? Well, That's one of my biggest nitpicks. I always, I, I got the, I got the um, impression that maybe Spock was trying a little harder once Kirk was down there. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> since since absolutely. Kirk was down there, they couldn't, le you know, leave him there, so... So that's why that's why they were following, you know, the 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 meteor and reverse and everything and basically burning out Scotty's bairns. But um my well, bairns know, <laughs> You know, so they 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 don't interfere on the cultural level. But then they go out there and say they had been successful on their own you know, deflecting the thing, or you could still call interference with the fact that they repaired the deflector, you know, one way or the other, it, it's still interference. You see, I don't so think that they didn't repair the deflector. What they basically did was they just activated it. There wasn't anybody right. there that knew how to activate it. And they basically sort of restored that, that knowledge back to them, which I don't know if that, you know, if how technically against the prime directive it is to like, help them out with something that's already an established part of their culture, you know, take, or take it a different way. Take, say that the obelisk in this instance was, was never part of the equation. Take, you know, say right. it's a and, whole different and, and they scenario. Brought, and they, they took the part of the, the preservers and gave them an obelisk or something like that. But no, not even that. Say a whole different scenario. Say, say, you know, the enterprise is flying along and they find a planet like say Viridian three. You know that that's that's going to be destroyed by some sort of natural catastrophe, 
And Kirk and crew look at it and go, you know what? We have the power to prevent this and save these people. They're never going to know, but we, we can do that. We can save these people. And so they save them. 10,000 years from now, this turns out to be the next race of... Space Hitlers. Uh, space Hitler. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it turns out to be the next, you know, Cardassians or whatever that are out there raping and pillaging across the oh, galaxy. I hate that Kim Kardashian. Sorry, you know I, don't I, mean? Mean to, I don't mean to, you know, get away from the show, but I just hate her. <laughs> Fat-ass space slut. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. There, there's there's a I don't, whole lot of... I don't exactly get the Prime Directive. It sort of reminds me a little bit of Asimov's Law of Robotics, where it's like, you know, the robot shall not allow a human through action or inaction to come to harm but I, could, I, I would see the prime directive being more like you know I, I understand the not wanting to affect the culture to let the culture you know um, evolve, develop, uh, develop in its own way but right. then there's also that idea of like why on earth so why in space would you want to uh, do they say that in the future why why in space would you ever want to do that because a lot God of those people don't, don't end, end up on earth some of them may never have been to earth on their life anyway sorry <laughs> but they usually end up still saying something like why in the world or why in the galaxy yeah. or something. Thank God they don't say like where in space or because that's just, it sounds goofy. Yeah. I don't care what galaxy you're from. That sounds stupid. I, I, I don't understand the whole, you know, just non action, no helping, n none of that. Why? And, and if you're from, if, if you're from space and you're exploring the, the universe and stuff, that whole idea of, I don't know if that idea comes from the whole UFO myth story, you know, that we have going around of like, we have the aliens, but the aliens aren't like, the aliens haven't landed in Washington and said, hi everybody, we're the aliens because of some prime directive of theirs or something, you know, and that's where that idea came from. But I, I don't see, I wouldn't see anything morally wrong with introduce you know going to a planet and saying hi we're from space even if that blows their minds you know what i mean i mean uh, how condescending maybe this is the some of the basis of the you know maybe the future condescending of next generation where they're like you know oh you know we don't want to blow you know blow their minds or mess up their culture by you know touching them with our you know advancing them before their time or stuff why not <laughs> really why not because even if you are advancing them you're gonna save a lot of lives you're gonna cause a lot of trouble by you know introducing new issues but that's kind of the, you know that's kind of reality reality is there's other life forms in the universe so you know I, I don't under quite understand the whole you know don't don't introduce yourself or or only introduce yourself if they're after a certain point in development i'm never was too clear on what that was because why how do we have ties with all these other planets anyway you know what i mean if we haven't introduced well, in, ourselves in as first a, in first contact it was 
when you get warp drive. When, yeah, when you yeah, when you get warp drive. I don't know. I mean, I guess that must be the 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 universal constant. I I guess so, according to that. So the Federation kind of existed before. Was the was the Federation there before the Vulcans came to Earth? Before Earth, you know what I'm saying? I, I think the I the always... implication is that, well, it it depends on where you go from because see, it, the Federation it, 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 it seems very Earth centric of... to me. It seems to be made exactly. up of a lot. Of, if if the universe is so large, there's a lot of Earthlings in the Federation of planets. So I tend to think that it started on Earth. That's how I always right picture it. See, I think the original implication was that because Starfleet headquarters was on Earth and everything is, as you say, very, very Earth-centric, very America-centric, really, yeah. that, you know, the, 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 it was heavily implied that we basically ran the show. Um, come to think of it, and I, I know that, you know, retro, you know, ret retcons kind of piss people off and everything, but it's got to be said that Enterprise actually shows us the formation of the Federation toward its final episodes, which I actually liked. I liked not exactly how we got there because the storyline, while it was good, was also a little off-putting because mm -hmm. there was this story about Peter Weller, uh, RoboCop, plays this like space racist, basically, that, that tries space to... Space RoboCop racist? Yeah, pretty, pretty much. That tries <laughs> to bring about, you know... He, he's basically a uh, um, it's almost like a future version of I, I don't know I, I, I have a half form thought but I, I can't put it all together it, it's like he, he's trying to foment or, or foment uh, prejudice against the alien races and drive basically anybody, anybody who's not human off earth in this one story and at the conclusion of the story, not only doesn't he succeed, he basically cements the formation of, you know, so by trying to prevent the formation of the uh, of the Federation, he basically assures that it's right. going to happen. And uh, I didn't exactly like how they got there, but it is it was interesting. You know, it was it was a neat way to kind of fill in the blanks on on the backstory of that. But. I, I enjoyed Enterprise, but I had my problems with it, and one of my biggest problems with it was basically the, the base that you have to go from for Enterprise and, and things having to do with the formation of the Federation is that that base is First Contact, which is a movie I don't like on so many uh -huh. levels, including the whole, uh, just the way the, the Vulcan Alliance is introduced and all that. That was an element of Enterprise that was carried over from First Contact that I just was not comfortable with. I feel like I've gotten completely off topic. <laughs> I'm, you know, what one thought I had in here, I'm surprised the internet hasn't done more with the scene of Kirk administering CPR to a little little boy. <laughs> I'm very surprised. And it's funny because Kirk, you could tell, I think maybe actually like this was when that might have been when they first started teaching people CPR. And that might right. be how it found its way in here. And it's because it, Kirk makes a point of going, you know, like, oh, well, it's something people have been doing a long time since and then trails off. But you know, he, he he very meticulously goes through it, you know, very, you know, 
but it's just it's just very unsettling seeing William Shatner lock lips with with a little boy. It's not mm-hmm. something not something you ever really want to see or expect to see, and I'd forgotten it was in there. Um, altogether, and and another Star Wars connection is Scotty's line where you know. He, he basically, you know, does the Hans... Uh, this is before, of course, Star Wars. Maybe they got it from this where, you know, he basically asks the ship to hold together. I can't, he basically yeah, hear says, me, baby, hold together. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's almost yeah. it's almost the exact same same line. So I, I, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, one thing that uh, <laughs> really, 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 really just, just cracked me up. I'd forgotten all about it is in the fight with with uh indian khan when kirk does the pole dance and like he runs and like grabs onto the pole and flips around and kicks the guy he does every one of his trip he does a jump kick he gets flipped it's uh, he gets flipped and then there's an obvious stunt man there for for the flip part you know i thought that was that 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 whole fight was just like awesome <laughs> good good fight music had a Indiana Jones like fly on face scene in that that one close up where that fly yeah. keeps landing on Kirk's face that was cracking me up too waiting for it to just walk in his mouth like on in the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah that guy just looks so much like Khan it was, it was <laughs> he does up. actually and then I guess Star Trek had a Liberace thing because when they put him in his wedding outfit he totally looks like space Indian Liberace <laughs> seriously you expect him to play some space sort of weird Indian Liberace <laughs> yeah I actually someday when we we're really famous and we, we auction off our notes our notebooks for the show, which is a dream of mine someday. Somebody's going to open it up and actually see that I wrote the words. Kirk looks like space Indian Liberace in it. And they're going to see notes like, awesome fly on face, exclamation point. And go, what I want to see, see a line of Star Trek action figures, one of them which is... <laughs> Indian Kirk with fly, space Indian Liberace with with flying kick action. Okay, uh, what an action figure it has flying kick action. It has a removable fly that you can stick on his face, and it's got his space Liberace cape, space Indian Liberace cape. And it functions as a glider cape. Goddamn Kirk. <laughs> You know, you just set him down someplace, and within two months, the guy's married and has a kid. It just—he's running the place. Yeah, yeah exactly. he, he sits down, he runs the place, he steals the girlfriend away from whoever's in charge, mates mates her up, has a kid, fall totally falls in, you know, because Kirk he he totally falls in love with him. You know, he goes completely, and you know, this was also an example of. I didn't get the the uh, feeling that there was a hell of a lot of um, chemistry between William Shatner and the woman who played Mira Monti. A lot Thank of their you. a lot of their clutches seemed very. She seemed very uncomfortable. And the scene where they're running through the woods and he's going Miramonte, ho oh, Miramonte, sort well, of see, the creepy. Whole, the whole reason I wanted to <laughs> that to reminds me of Randy. <laughs> Actually. Yeah, yeah, he does actually. <laughs> Randy used to do that. Like he has that fake smile on his face, and Randy would do that fake smile and be like, "Oh, Miramonte, 
<laughs> his his big line from this well he had two big lines from this episode one of them which was i am kirok which he used to do I all the time kirok the other one was uh behold a god who bleeds which is just it's the stupidest line but it's funny but it was just the way he would say it all the time every time he would get anybody would get a cut or a scratch <laughs> yeah but the whole what kind of that... god bleeds I wanted to look at this episode <laughs> on the heels of uh, of City on the Edge of Forever was to examine the these two uh, love affairs and, and see how they compared and contrast. And I I don't see. I wouldn't put this one on the same level as as Edith Keeler well, because I you know, let, let's let's put it this way. He he got there. She's by tradition. She has to marry him and bear children. She's hot as hell. And she's very fresh, she's very disposed towards burying Kurt's children. It's a no it's it's a no brainer. But she's right. you know, Miramonte is definitely not the pointiest arrow in the quiver if you get my drift. You know what I'm saying? She's she's not really you know, she's not like Edith Keeler it was like his it, like his intellectual equal Right. Not even that. They had a sort of philosophical um, right. a kinship whereas Miramonte is that sort of like ah you're a sweet kid you know sort of thing is like man you're hot and man you're you're nice you're just you're very nice but yeah you know she's not a road scholar right she's his she's his squaw basically is what it comes yes. down to yes you know, and I don't even day, mean she's... just because she's not like as advanced because she lives in a in a less advanced culture I don't think she's the, you know, some people just aren't very, I'm not saying right. she was dumb. She just wasn't very bright. Well, I, I, I think the, the, the big, the big thing with the two of them is that I could see if circumstances had been different, I could see Kirk being willing to stay with Edith Keeler given that choice right when he wakes from his space amnesia in this episode had miramani and his child survived i don't see kirk yeah. staying there right I, somehow or or saying other, come with me a, yeah yeah he'd have, he'd have found a way to wiggle out of that one way or the other he, yeah. he i don't see kirk once he realizes who he is, oh yeah, he wouldn't. He would wiggle out of it, and he wouldn't deal with it until twenty-five years later, when his son comes gunning for the Federation <laughs> on a stolen starship or something, you know. And then right. Oh yeah. shit. Yep. Exactly. So yeah, I think I think that's the biggest telling difference right there is that I could actually buy the idea that that Kirk could have stayed behind with Edith Keeler. You know, I really do buy that, that, that he, you know, he saw potential there, you know, and that he, yeah. he loved her that much, where I just don't see that with, with Miramani, you know, and I'm sure that Kirk felt really, cause I, even at the end of the episode, he wasn't all you know, that broken up over death. He was broken up, but I got more of the feeling of it was like you say, oh, she was a sweet kid kind of broken right. up, whereas she was the love of my life broken up. You know what I mean? That, that she... He felt bad for her as a person that had died. That you know she was nice and she didn't deserve what happened to her. Rather than and he probably felt vaguely guilty. Crushed. He probably felt yeah, vaguely, guilty, yeah. vaguely guilty that he felt a little happy yeah. that he 
that he dodged the kid bullet too. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but uh but I got to yeah, tell I, you man if if all it takes is styrofoam rocks to kill you then maybe you sh- your genetics shouldn't be passed on. <laughs> well, I noticed too that not only were they, you know, clearly, you know, some sort of foam rubber styrofoam type of thing, but I mean Kirk was the one that was getting pelted like crazy, yet he's up and around and okay. She really didn't get hit very he, many times. He blocked, at all. He yeah, blocked her from one. him. Yeah, he yeah. turned her right away and, and, and was taking the brunt. And yeah. and McCoy's like, she took some internal injuries and it's like, really? Because those things were just kind of bouncing an inch, you know. I mean, yeah, there you you could tell a real rock upside the head <laughs> and t- what torso compared to these, but yeah, what are you gonna do? It's nineteen sixty eight. But yeah, <laughs> those those rocks did not look very painful at all. It, it looked like a sort of situation where you'd be standing there going, "Really?" And those and the, I gotta say that those guys turned on Kirok really fast. You know, it's like they they gave him one chance and then they're like, "Hey, screw you, buddy!" And then they just start hucking <laughs> rocks at him. You know, all of a sudden, they're fickle as hell, man. Those space Indians. Space Navajos. One thing, uh, one big praise I have for this episode is, you know, and you can't say this too often with Star Trek and with original Star Trek, but that set looks awesome. The exterior set with the obelisk, I mean, that looks real. Like it's it looks been standing there expensive. a long time and it looks very, yeah, very expensive. It looks expensive. like it's made of stone and steel. It looks heavy yeah. and it looks like a big piece of metal on top of a big rock. Yeah. And and the scenes where they're standing up on it and you're sort of looking up at it, it looks, yeah, they fabricated a really neat set with that. And and I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that like, the whole like Indian longhouses and stuff that maybe they took advantage of some, you know, like Renaissance fair, like Indian village, you know, that some place had, you know, that already had stuff like that, where you go with oh, the kids. Come on, to... come on. I mean, it was Paramount studios. Right. And I'm sure there had to be some Paramount Western on TV right. at the time, you know, like, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, you're right. Gunsmoke or, Bonanza or some friggin' mm-hmm. thing where they were just able to go next door and you know use you know use an existing. I'm sure that's yeah, why they were right. Indians. You're you know, is that they right. could just you know go to the next lot and go, okay, well you know we've done the gangster thing, we've oh, done yeah. the 1930s, you know we've done Nazis. Uh, oh wait, hey, we have an Indian set we can. And use. I'll bet you with a little bit of research, there could be found probably a a, a Bonanza episode or whatever one was on Paramount. That that has the same Indians in it, you know, where they probably film. They probably when they struck the set for one, they said, "Hell, oh, let's, you know, let's wait to film that Star Trek when we're filming the Bonanza episode. That way, we can use all the extras, right? You know, and uh, well, it says here that the woman that played Miramani had portrayed a Native American before in a in a Daniel Boone episode. So there you go, right there. As a matter of fact, the, the Daniel it says uh, in a Daniel Boone episode called Requiem for Craw Green, which featured Jeffrey Hunter, which was uh, uh, Captain Pike. Captain Pike, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. So yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of these these people would uh, you know would do you know roles Saves like money. that. You know, get get almost like typecast to a certain degree. Oh sure. 
I, I, one of the things that, as soon as this episode started, I was like, okay, if I didn't know this was a third season episode by now, this clinches it, is the look on Kirk's face when he gets zapped by the mind whammy thing. Yes. Because one of the things that always jumps out to me and, and just screams third season episode is that I don't know if if Shatner had been reined in in the first two episodes or if he was just letting himself go. Maybe he'd lost interest. I don't know what it was, but something with him changed in the third season. Not only was he beefier, but he's so much hammier yes. in the third, episode, uh, third season. I, I, there's something just drastically changed between like Renaissance Man Kirk in you know, the very beginnings of the original Trek by the third season, he's, he's doing that parody thing again. You know what I mean? Where, where he's, it's almost like he's just not taking it as seriously a lot of the time. And so there's a lot of this episode, as much as I enjoy it, where a lot of Kirk just feels a little off to me, you know, and it's, it's weird things. It's like the goofy expressions he would make. And there's a lot, you know, like the I am Kurok scene, especially the mind melt where he keeps screaming. He's really over the top. <laughs> yes. And then the scene where, you know, he's doing the hugging himself and I'm so happy standing up on top of the obelisk. I'm yes. just watching that going, these are all the reasons why we used to make fun and laugh our asses off at Star Trek when we would watch it as kids and, and why we fixated on Kirk because he is so over the top and and kind of laughable you know but in a fun way not a not a horrible way but yeah this this isn't really kirk's finest hour as far as shatner's act he's he's pretty hammy in this one yes for sure but in a fun way though yeah his, now, uh, his whole romancing of miramonte is just like just subtly creepy to me the whole the whole thing well it is because he had like he'd been eating tuna fish or something, and like it, it really stunk to like make out with him or something. But whatever was going on, something was making Miramonte not too into the whole thing. You could tell by their body language that they would just sort of position themselves in right. a romantic position. Well, see, you're talking about the dynamic between actor and actress. I got that same kind of vibe within the the context of the story because it has a certain... I'm trying to think of how to put this delicately without being crude or crass, but it has a certain creepy element in the fact of she's... While she doesn't look particularly young, I mean, she looks like she's more or less a contemporary of Kirk age-wise. She's so naive and innocent that it's almost like... You know the the older wizened way of the world man coming to marry the little twelve you know the innocent little oh, yeah. naive twelve year old you know what I mean and so that's a very creepy element too because she doesn't seem like like she's world wise enough to know okay Kirk's just putting the Kirk on her you know what I mean right and so yeah there's a little there's a little creepiness there you I know? don't know if Kirk, Kirk might not be so sure he might be just putting the Kirk on her by instinct and not even know he's right. putting the Kirk <laughs> on her because he's got space amnesia now did you watch the uh, the enhanced version of this yes I did I loved the the enhanced effects in this I thought it was awesome and, 
you know, every time I, I get all cocky and confident that I'm, you know, I'm so down with my Star Trek, something comes out to, to remind me that, oh, yeah, I totally forgot. Because I'll, I'll be honest with you, one of my little nitpicks over the years with uh, with Generations, and I don't think I brought this up in the commentary that we did, was the part where uh, Scotty proposes firing the main deflector dish of the Enterprise B to simulate a torpedo blast. And that always kind of, as much as I think it's a great effect, and I love the sound effect in the movie when they do that, because it's just a great, you know, deep bass thrum when they fire that deflector. At the same rate, I always took that to be a very, very next generation gimmick, because there's, you know, in the, in the Borg two-parter, that's the proposed weapon that they're going to use to destroy the Borg is they're going to fire the main deflector dish at the Borg. Mm -hmm. So I always thought that that was a, a next generation thing. I never remembered them ever firing the main deflector in the original series, but they do it in this episode. That's the first attempt that they make to deflect the, uh, the asteroid is they fire the main deflector dish. And I saw that and I was totally, I was like, that's cool as hell. I had totally forgotten that they did that. And I, I don't remember how it looks in the original version, but in this uh, enhanced edition, man, that looked awesome. Yeah. I mean, it was it was like a, it was you know it was a, a almost the same angle, but with you know the original Enterprise and with an asteroid instead of you know the Enterprise B and a and a deflector di or the uh, Nexus thing, but it looked very similar, and even the sound effect was very similar. I thought that was really neat. I had completely forgotten that they did that. I want to go and see the unenhanced to see how they uh, they they covered it because yeah, the the scenes with the the asteroid, the scene with the Enterprise, just sort of pacing the asteroid backwards, it's beautiful. And when they finally do get the, and what I like about these enhanced is they really they really think they don't just mess with stuff just to mess with it. They leave it pretty much alone and just fix what they figure had to be fixed to try to make it seem seamless. So it's basically with this one, the only stuff that really gets tinkered with that I could tell were the were the scenes in space with the Enterprise and the and the asteroid, or the meteor, or the asteroid. And uh, yeah, they're, they're gorgeous. And when they finally do get the the um, deflector on the planet working and it does hit it in the the way that the um, asteroid sort of jerks over to the side is very realistic you know it, it looks very much like maybe something in space would move yeah I I I I, I wish they'd done the Star Wars <laughs> rejiggers because they would have you wouldn't have noticed half the stuff, you know, if they did something like that. And and I really appreciate that with this because it doesn't take away. So far, all the enhanced, it's truly enhanced, you know, it's not just added to all the stuff that they do improves upon. And, you know, it actually keeps you in the story, whereas the old crappy special effects are more likely to take you out. So I like that. I like that that happens. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on that. Yeah, very much so. Whereas, you know, the the um, what you would normally think would happen would be, you know, if you go in and mess with something, that that's going to distract you from it. So they're 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 very smart. We keep going over this over and over again, but yeah, I just 
I guess you pretty much can't say it enough. Now, it bugs me a little bit, though, that... Now, I, I guess they were supposed to be putting more phaser power through the phaser emitters than they normally do to try to deflect it or something like that. But still, it seems like one of those weird instances where... You know, they, they fire a couple shots and then all of a sudden the ship's wigging out. You know, right. and the, the the warp drive is overtaxed and the phasers after a couple shots are wigging out. And, you know, the ship's just a horrible mess after just a couple attempts at deflecting this asteroid. And it's one of those things where it just it makes the Enterprise feel inconsistent to me. You well, know? I think it, it was a me... matter of math where they were like... They had to get to it by a certain point, and what happened was Spock overtaxed it by trying to get there too fast. And once they got there, they didn't have enough energy to deflect it. But in the attempt of trying, that he just kept the ship. You know, if the if the ship had maybe cruised out there at warp three and showed up, you know, fully charged and uh, and you know, nice and cool. You know, with cool engines and everything, they probably could have blasted the meteor out of the sky. Why they didn't do that in the first place, I don't know. Why they didn't just blast the meteor into, like, tiny pieces that any planet's, you know, atmosphere would take care of, I don't know. But, you know. <laughs> it, it worked well, the- for me. It didn't, it didn't really, that didn't. I it, it I I did think of that, but it didn't really bother me that much. I guess you know because we see other episodes where the ship's flying around and it's getting blasted and it's having these big you know uh-huh. big battles with multiple Klingon vessels or Romulan vessels or something, and it's firing all kinds of shots and it's taking a pounding and everything's fine. And then you get to an episode like this, and you know it. it it's a complete opposite. It fires a couple shots, and all of a sudden, it's dying. I was seeing it like it, a horse. You know, they ran the horse too, f- too f- hard without giving it water, and then once they got <laughs> to where they were going, it was it was slow and sloggy because it was tired and you know, tired I and guess. under stress. The big question for me at the end of this episode is: How screwed up is this culture now? You know, because now they had, you know, a god come live with them for a while. You know, so so their their culture was contaminated that way. You know, and Kirk lived there, actually made enhancements, you know, albeit minor ones, to their society. The but lamp. You know, he still he brought them, you know, he brought them the lamp and, and was working on, you know, irrigation techniques and all this other stuff. You know, now they set them up with that deflector, so they have a constant reminder of the gods. You know, something that actually functions rather than some, you know, mysterious structure that you know, in a couple more hundred or thousand years, it will well, just be a mystery to them, like well, they, our pyramids or something. They would have known that. They would have known that too, if if their because tra- that was their tradition. You know, is it would have been it would have been Indian con space Indian con who would have gone down there and then they would have seen the beam come out of it too. And they would have gone, what did you do? And he would have given them some bullshit story about he went in and communed with the gods or whatever, but he would have gone in and punched the right buttons just like Spock did, which was push one button. And, uh, he would have, he would have gone in and pushed the button and, uh, and, and that would have been that. So it wasn't, you know, that, that was built into 
you know, the the guys who put those guys there knew that someday that they would see this thing shoot a beam into the sky and save their asses. And Kirk was a god anyway, and I'm sure McCoy and Spock were considered gods too because they appeared out of the air and right uh, and their strange appearance, and they had the same clothes that Kirk had. So it all still – that's what I was trying to get at earlier, but I guess I – I didn't think through how I worded it, but, you know, it all plays into a, a whole fate thing where you're watching it and they're like, you are the, you know, you're the God that comes to earth. And, and we're thinking to ourselves, no, he's Kirk. And he's thinking to himself, no, there's some mistake. But actually, it seems like he actually was. <laughs> he he, he was the fulfillment of their pro- prophecy that, that, that there was, that somehow... You know, the people who put the monument there knew that that someday that it would ha- it would go down this way and set it up so that so that Kirk would be able to to fix it. So I think you've made an awesome argument for something I asserted a while ago, which is that Kirk is the chosen one. He is the chosen one. For these one. people he was. He is the chosen one. Yes, he was <laughs> and 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 he fulfilled their prophecy perfectly he did what he was and maybe it was part of that also for him to introduce the lamp to them (laughs) (laughs) and i love the scene where he's sitting there carving it out you know yeah it is a shatner hamminess even the way he carves the lamp he's like i am carving this lamp i think i will call it the lamp too that's what i'll tell them it's the lamp they need light here but uh well yeah, I think I've, that's pretty much all my notes on uh, on the Paradise Syndrome. Except, uh, you know, they, they sort of spell it out at the beginning when they're talking about the Tahitian, the Tahiti Syndrome. Yeah. You know, of, of people going native. And then Kirk does exactly that. You know, there's plenty of foreshadowing in the beginning of this of Kirk like, man, I'd love to stay here and mate with the women here. Man, it's nice here. Oh, that's totally what they should. You know, in the enhanced version, they should have not only enhanced it; they should have they should have changed the name. It should have been "Dances with Kirk." <laughs> God, pole dances with Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> Totem pole dances with Kirk. All right. I- I- Lay your head and go to sleep, my child. And I will tell you tales of yesterday Listen to the story of our Savior And what came to pass that fateful day
And so the God was given special honors For with the chief's daughter he would walk And when he was asked what his name was The God replied, Kirok But one was filled with jealousy For Kirok stole his bride to be Attacked amongst the forest trees Behold the God that bleeds But the jealous one could not divide For Kirok was the village pride And Kirok went and took his bride And made a child deep inside He made a child deep inside Wild, the sky was filled with rage, and Kirok beat upon the temple like an animal in a cage. But the temple would not open, and the stones began to fly. He lost his wife and child, and returned to the sky. Oh, he returned to the sky. Oh, he returned to the sky. He returned to the sky. Oh, he returned to the sky. Why, hello there, lovely ladies. May I just say that you look quite beautiful in your matching Slave Leia metal bikinis? You have permission to come aboard my den of nerd erotica. Some people would call it my mom's garage. I call it 10.1 forward. Can I interest you in a death stick? Nope. I was just kidding. Have a shot of trying Once you get loosened up, we can play a friendly game of Strip Fizzbin. Let me loosen that strap. Hey, suckers. Maury Clawhammer here, okay? You want your freaking Star Wars? I got your Star Wars right here! What about the Star Trek? You like that shit too, right? Right? That's what I thought. Well, we got that and we got more freaking comics than you can read in your entire miserable goddamn life. Hey, there's even a girl who talks about unicorns and goddamn Harry Potter and M... 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 Them goddamn oriental cartoons with the big eyes. So you get your ass over to the Two True Freaks podcast at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. That's spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, all right? All right? Good. You can get there on the internet and choose from hundreds of quality Two True Freaks podcasts. And would it kill you to buy a goddamn t-shirt? Remember, Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks. Attention, people of Earth, do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hey you! Yes you! Hearing this message. Do you like podcasts? Well evidently you do because you're listening to one right now. Do you like giant monsters? Of course you do! Who doesn't like giant monsters? Well then have I got the show for you. Earth Destruction Directive is the newest Daikaiju podcast on the internet. And we talk about all your old favorites. 
like Godzilla, Rodan, King Ghidorah, and Gamera, but also lesser-known monsters like Gappa, Yongari, and Giawa. We cover everything from movies to comic books to video games, and we're kicking it old school. This is breaking news. We are receiving word that Earth's Destruction Directive is now a part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. Listeners are advised to stay in their homes and listen to all of the fine quality podcasts on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, available at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. We now return you to your regularly scheduled broadcast. Wait a minute. Is this true? Earth Destruction Directive is now on the Two True Freaks Network? You bet your oxygen destroyer it is. So if you love atomic-powered, fire-breathing, hardcore, giant monster action, then head on over to twotruefreaks.libson.com and check out Earth Destruction Directive. We're turning all of your daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. Okay, welcome back to Star Trek Monthly Monday, number whatever number this is, TOS edition, 37 I think we said before. Yes, it is. And we are going to be looking at uh, a Star Trek, uh, a DC Comics Star Trek issue. This is number 30, so take it away, Chris Honeyman. Yes, we have Star Trek DC Comics number 30 from September of 1986. Um... Now, Scott and I have done a couple shows today. We did a Star Wars show today where we did a comic from 1984 that was 60 cents in two years. Now this comic was one dollar eighty. One hundred pennies for a comic book. By Yours this says a dollar? Mine says a dollar on it. Ooh, mine's a 75 cent issue. I think you're getting yours from like... Canada or something? Some other country or something, <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, scratch that then. <laughs> and uh, so uh, we got a little bit of a different team on on board here. And as if you recall, we've been you know uh, off our off our normally schedule of doing these. So you know, there's been this sort this sort of little run of you know each character sort of getting a little story, a little solo story. So this one's Uhura's story. Now I'm assuming the uh, the. The cover's probably Villagran. It could be, um, like, the inside who uh, we got Carmine Infantino on pencils and and Ricardo Villagran on inks. But nobody's signed. There's no signature on the... Unless there isn't on my Canadian cover and you've got one on yours. But it doesn't really say who the artist is. Yeah, I'm not seeing it on this one either. Uh, the, I can see if I can look it up while you're while you're doing the synopsis. But there's yeah, and there's not really much distinctive about the the cover to give away who drew it anyway. It's just sort of like the Enterprise rushing up on a Klingon bird of prey, which is pounding the hell out of a 
um, old school shuttlecraft, an old 1701 style shuttlecraft. So we got, of course, as I said, Carmine Infantino and Villa Grand doing the art. We got Paul Kupperberg, who was on our show at one point. We have interviewed him on, uh, it was first Star Trek mon- Monthly Monday, wasn't it? That he was yeah, he, he had written, uh, I'm trying to remember what, what issue that was that he wrote, but he had written a, a story yeah, it was prior way, to this one. Way back in episode number four. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah, that was the one. <laughs> and uh, so let's see, we got letterings by Augustine Moss, Michelle Wolfman is a colorist. Robert Greenberger is the editor-in-chief. Okay, so this is Uhura's story. So uh, we start out with the Excelsior orbiting the small planet Tally, waiting to observe the end of its Class M life. They uh, pick up a distress signal from around the uninhabited planet and find out that it comes from an old shuttlecraft with Enterprise ID codes. And this leads into basically Uhura's origin story as she and Kirk tell Savick how the shuttlecraft came uh, to be there in orbit around this planet Tally. So back in the day when Uhura first joined the crew of the Enterprise, uh, she basically got no respect. You know, Sulu was hitting on her. Her fellow communication officer thought she was a stuck-up right around Robert's Dirty Perkish Harkabank Flatten Porton Philippa Burton Perkaluma Burton Dirtin Boston Adam Martin and Adam Baraka Frim Flipper Rip to put a loom of wagon fracks like wagon floating back car and then cut a back rack a lot of kitty free little pickin' red and written hitting bloats of fill in the blanks but you know it was all the curly cues of, of swearing and even Kirk thought there was something kind of funny about her so um, while they're in a, 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 the sector of space near the planet Tally the Enterprise is hailed by a, a Klingon ship and uh, they claim that the Enterprise is coming into Klingon territory and d- demand that the Enterprise you know turn around and leave uh, and Kirk says this is ridiculous they're well within Federation space so you know he wants to figure out what's going on so he grabs Sulu, Spock and uh, you know a couple red shirts and head down to the planet and uh, he leaves Mr. Mitchell in charge so as they beam down like as they are beaming down Hurra detects that the Klingons are using some sort of high frequency wave to block any kind of beaming back up or any kind of communication so they're going to be stuck down there and they don't have enough time to stop them from beaming down. And um, so basically they're, they're sort of stuck on the planet. And um, Mitchell doesn't know what to do. He, he decides he's going to go and hide around the other side of the planet and wait for the, um, you know, the Federation to come back him up. And Uhura, of course, thinks that's a, a really shitty idea. So, um, so she takes it upon herself to steal a, a shuttlecraft to go and rescue the captain and company down on the planet. So when she gets to the planet, she finds the Klingons are using 
some sort of beam or high high frequency wave which basically neurally disables humans and uh, paralyzes them and uh, she manages to use her tricorder to sort of negate it around her for the most part and as she's exploring she finds the landing landing party incapacitated and a semi-conscious Spock you know sort of tells her you know she's going to have to fix this situation so she finds uh, a Klingon base of course and after you know incapacitating a few sentries uh, she manages to sort of blow up the building that's generating this this beam and she gets sort of chased out of camp gets into her, her shuttle flies away and I assume they don't really show it but I assume she sort of uh flies over to where the rest of the landing party were incapacitated and picks him up and uh and uh, they get off the planet only to run right into the path of the bird of prey which starts taking pot shots at him but luckily they are beamed aboard the enterprise just as the klingon ship punctures a hole in the side of the shuttlecraft um so her has rescued the captain and sort of earned a place of respect with the crew and you know by by saving the captain and the the away team i guess she's not going to get court martialed for for insubordination and uh you know back back in the present quote unquote present enterprise not enterprise excelsior pardon me uh Uhura chooses not to watch the planet blow up in its final minutes, preferring to remember it the way it was. The planet of her great victory and her sort of proving her worth to the Enterprise. It sounds good on paper, huh? Sort of. It, it does, yeah. <laughs> Ugh. Um, I have a feeling that I'm going to be a little lighter on this than, than you are, but yeah, this one has some problems. See, I remember hating this issue when it came out. And in fairness to our friend, Mr. Kupperberg, it's not the story. It's honestly not. It's just the story suffers a bit for me only in the aspect of it's a horror story, which frankly, I just couldn't care less. I'm sorry. I, you know, Uhura, you know, not my favorite star Trek character. So it already had that hurdle to overcome for, you know, in my mind where, where this story, this issue rather really takes a beating is the story is actually pretty decent. Um, the art is atrocious <laughs> in this and it pains me to it say it seems that. to be dashed off for sure it, it is it is so slapdash and it pains me to say that because the penciler is carmine infantino i really like carmine infantino not everything that he's done because you know there's a lot of stuff he's done that i'm just like i don't like that i like his flash stuff but again i'm not a big flash fan I have been very forgiving to the point of of probably being a full-out apologist for his Star Wars work. I enjoy mm-hmm. that. And, and granted, a lot of that is for sentimental reasons. I grew up on no, that I, I like so, his style. You know, it, it might not be the, the greatest yeah. like draftmanship, maybe, but he has had a, sti- right. had a, a style all of, of his own, and only a little bit of that comes out in this. There's only a couple places... Where you right. see something and go, ah, that's Infantino-like, you know? It's got the... 
But see, I, I'm very, very forgiving on his Star Wars work. And a lot of that is because, you know, he only had the original movie to work with in the time frame that he was working on the Star Wars title. I mean, yeah, there were a couple post-Empire issues he did, but even those I'm pretty sure were done pre-Empire mm -hmm. and just released after the movie. You know, so he was working on the Star Wars title for Marvel at a time when all that existed of Star Wars was it. So he had to create a lot of elements. So, yeah, does a lot of his stuff feel you know, not feel Star Wars. Yeah, a lot of it does because they had to just kind of wing it until they got more to play with. This is a completely different story. You've got all 79 episodes of the TV show and by this point, three movies. They had plenty of reference material to draw from, yet not only does the issue seem very rushed, very slapdash, but it's just wildly inconsistent throughout the entire issue. I mean, we start off the issue and this is supposed to be the bridge of the Excelsior, which granted we only got a glimpse of at the end of Star Trek three, but through the issue, no matter which bridge you're looking at, whether it's the Excelsior bridge or the enterprise, you know, the original series enterprise bridge you're looking at Kirk's command chair has one of those gooseneck lamp things on it. Uh huh. To my recollection, only Pike's chair ever had that. And then the bridge I of the I think they original... were trying to say this was like sometime just after Pike, so maybe it was still there. You know, I think they were trying to make that, you know. All right, I can, I'll buy that. That this is a, you know, an early earlier version of that Enterprise, so it might have still had that, you know, with a fresher Kirk in the... I put this in the time period that most of the 2009 Star Trek took right. place as far as like in the history of the Kirk on the Enterprise. This is like a fresh Kirk on the Enterprise. Not that fresh because he's got Dr. McCoy there and not the other doctor. Right. And it was weird because I thought Mr. Mitchell might be Gary Mitchell, but then it's like, no, Gary Mitchell would definitely be dead by now. Dead by then, yeah. So well, bottom of page five... Kirk's reclining in his command yes. chair, which just doesn't work. I'll, all right, I'll, I'll take your no prize answer for the gooseneck thing on the original Enterprise bridge. That actually works, but I, I can't forgive it on the opening the, page. The picture right above Kirk reclining there of, of the guys watching Uhuru retreat down the hallway, that's very uh, Carmine Infantino, the way that she's mm -hmm. the way that she's sort of in that, like, um, cheese. It's not cheesecakey, but it's sort of pin-uppy, you know, yeah. real curvy. The way she's like tipped at an angle, that's that's very Carmine. But it's just little things like that here and there that would otherwise I never would have known Carmine Infantino did the art on this. Never in a million years. I mean, look at the the second panel on page nine. That bridge is massive. Yes. <laughs> the helmsman and navigator are like 15 feet apart from each other at that massive control. I mean, this does not remotely resemble the bridge of the classic Enterprise. I mean, it was very small, very almost claustrophobic. And this one is massive. It's, it's like there's a freaking TARDIS in here. And then 
you know, page 10. Were there does beaming? that? Yeah, does that remotely resemble any transporter room you've ever seen? No, it looks you've like, got Scotty it looks like, at, like a basketball court with the stage at the end of it. Yeah. With spotlights on it. <laughs> Well, that transporter control that I, I'm assuming this is Scotty standing there, that looks like like one of those pegboard things that you you would have in like my dad's garage or something. Like his you know his wrench is hanging up. Well, there, they had some know? of those in the backgrounds in the old um, in the uh, old, in engineering in engineering right. Yeah, they had some of that pegboard sort of stuff. But so that's what it totally looks like. And that's probably he's probably drawing this from a series, just like oh well, I'll find some little piece of space equipment and oh here's one, and I'll have the guy work in that. Whereas it's nothing like the transporter room, you know, he's he's sort of set off to the side of the, you know, of the transporters. Yeah, the bottom of page eleven, second, it's the first to last panel. On yes, the, the bottom of page one the, of my, the one of my notes. Is, yeah, coming out of the bottom of the Enterprise. You know, you like, know why? Like the old Corgi models Exactly. Or I'm like, he must have seen that Corgi ad for that <laughs> Enterprise that I always wanted as a kid where the where it gave, like, cesarean section birth to the right. shuttlecraft. What I like about this is the, sh- the shuttle bay is right there. He has a close-up of the shuttle bay, and here it is coming out the wrong hole. Yep. You know? I-, I don't know. Yeah, that's like poop coming out of your mouth, Carmine. Somebody needed to give you a little more Star Trek instruction. It's weird. It's like Carmine Infantino. Maybe he, maybe he liked westerns or something. He's like, they keep having me do these space comics. I don't know nothing about this shit. <laughs> Page twenty-one, third panel. The uh, shuttlecraft takes a direct hit in the roof, yet the side wall blows out. How the hell does that work? makes no sense whatsoever (laughs) you know i could go on and on and on i actually made absolutely no notes for this because everything would have been a nitpick because i really the art ruined this issue for me it's as i say it's not a bad story um as i i think your synopsis proved it's just when you when you couple the art with this this is an example of the art being not only bad it's so bad it overpowers everything else. It just comes off as an altogether just crap issue. And the, my 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 damning piece of evidence here <laughs> is the last page is awful. Mm-hmm. You have for one thing, there's absolutely no you know typically in a flashback story, you'll get like rounded panels or something as a, as an artistic message to the reader that this is a flashback yes. happening right now. We don't get anything like that. We just go straight into the flashback. Well, then we come straight out of it, but evidently nobody bothered to tell the artist that because we come out of the flashback in the second panel on the last page in the third panel, we're now officially out of the flashback. And in the third panel, you have three characters in the panel you have Mr. Savick. She's in her correct outfit. You have Kirk, who is Admiral Kirk at this time. He's in his classic gold <laughs> shirt from the TV show. And Ahura keeps the same flashback outfit through the entire rest of the issue. She well, what we didn't back... see is while they were telling the story, they were dramatically changing into their old outfits. <laughs> Just to enhance it? Which was pretty awesome seeing that you got to see Ahura change on the bridge, you know, but... 
Yeah, they they changed during this flashback. They were they you know, just for dramatic effect. You know what? Did this story? I gotta flip back to the beginning. Did she start? Okay, she did start the uh, the the uh, flashback in the correct uniform, but she ends the mm-hmm. flashback as just, classic series Uhura. He just forgot. Yeah, he yeah, got used to drawing her one way. Not good. And Kirk, while he does change uniform, never changes hairstyle through the entire issue. <laughs> Shatner had vastly different hairstyles yes. between the original series and Star Trek Four. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I loves me some Carmen Infantino. This is bad Infantino. This is just bad, bad Infantino. <laughs> bad he needs to be smacked on the nose with a newspaper there's only one other page that if you go to page 16 the top panel of uhura running that's a dead giveaway carmine infantino girl (laughs) girl running pose Mm -hmm. but other than that it's i don't know i'm sort of used to the art in in these dc comics being kind of generic and sketchy so i don't go in with high hopes you know and I'm used to the ships either being great or mediocre. So this, the art, you know, I, I definitely was not relishing the art, but it, it only, it didn't stand out too much as worse than any other art to me. It, it, it just seemed, it just seemed hurried. It seemed like, all right, they had, you know, Carmine, it seems like Carmine Infantino was in a hurry, and it seems like the the inker was in a uh, Villagran was in a hurry too, because it's yeah, just he always looks like he's in a hurry. Yes. though. you know, there's there's a few parts that sort of work, but and it's it's inconsistent. There's a few parts where the inking is like on page fi- from fifteen to sixteen. You can look at page fifteen. It reminds me some of the detail work on the rocks and and stuff and on Uhura's fingers and her face sort of remind me of George Perez in a way, you know? Yeah. The, the, the detail and the fine lines mixed with the thick lines. Then you go to the next page and it's pure sketchy, thick, you know, blocky. It's totally inconsistent. You know, there's nothing, you know, it's almost as if two different it's, but it's the same penciler and the same inker. And these are supposed to be Klingons because it looks like she's getting attacked by an army of King Tuts. It's weird. I th- I was th- or the Juggernaut or something. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. it's like it's like maybe they wanted they didn't want to address that the Klingons look different in those days. These Klingons mm. are mighty pale for Klingons too, and that you know so they covered up all their so they covered up everything but just their face and their hands. So or not even their hands are in gloves too, just for the the face so that they didn't have to maybe think of you know what or maybe those suits were somehow protective so that 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 you know sound didn't bother them or something i don't know but there was if you didn't have any text you wouldn't be like if it if it wasn't a bird of prey there's no way you you would think that this was these were klingons there's nothing right. klingon about them as a matter of fact, they're pretty shitty warriors too, you know. See, this to me is something that I would expect from like Gold Key Star Trek or something, but you know, DC Star Trek 
had been better than this. And I think it's very telling that this was the last regular issue that I bought. After this, it was pick and choose, you know, and it was the seldom issue that I would pick up mm-hmm. beyond this point because, you know, as as you stated at the beginning, you know, we're we're resuming where our coverage left off with these, and we had had a string of solo stories, most of which I, I think we both agreed were pretty subpar. Pretty, pretty yeah. <laughs> and this was kind of the, the the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, I mean, not only was it an Ahura story, but then it was just so just bizarre you know, in, in, in the execution. And it was just, this was the point where I was like, you know, I just, I, I think I need to do some culling of my pull list and that, you know, sadly this title went, it's going to be interesting from this point on where, you know, where this goes, because the, you know, I'm familiar with some issues and completely yeah. unfamiliar you, with others. You're so. going to read some for the first time. So you might yep. get some that looked really crappy when you just flip through them that might turn out to be really good. So yeah, let's. But well, the very least, I know we have coming along that uh, I recall to be really awesome. Really good. Looking forward to, and I believe that's issue thirty-three, which uh, I've I've talked a lot about over the years. So I'm hoping that one still holds up. But I'm looking forward to that. That's that's a classic. It was a, it was a Star. It was an anniversary issue. You know, as in you know an actual anniversary of Star Trek. I want to say it was the twenty fifth anniversary. I think it must have been about the twenty. It had to have been about the twenty fifth around that time. Yeah, and it was um, twenty twentieth or no? I guess it was twentieth because this was eighty six. So it'd be the twentieth anniversary of Star Trek, and uh, that's a good story. I'm looking forward to that one. I think I think we'll both enjoy that. But that's all I got on this one. I, I wish I had liked it. I, I just didn't. <laughs> well, let me. I, I, I caught unawares, but let me pull out <laughs> the uh, Star Trek computer here and get it all uh, loaded up. All righty. I can now cross uh, Paradise Syndrome off the off list. list. And Steve Rogers can add it onto our, <laughs> <laughs> onto our list. All right. I'm fire this thing up, and we come with the number 17, which would put us in the first season. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Ah, the Squire of Gothos. Oh, my. Kirk versus Liberace. This is going to oh be a Oh, my. Good what a coincidence that we just did the episode where he had his Liberace uh, cape on. <laughs> it's, it's like Tony, ju- Randall, Tony Randall meets Liberace in that episode. He's got a little Tony Randall and a little Tony Curtis, too, in, in there. A little bit, yeah. A little bit, yeah. I will agree with that. I actually like that one as much as a simpering fop as uh, as uh, Trelane is. I actually do kind of like that episode. I like where Kirk smacks him in the face and he just gets so flustered. He forgets he has like omnipotent power to wipe <laughs> Kirk away. He just stands there like pouting like, you hit me. It's awesome. 
<laughs> I'm looking forward to that. That should be a lot of fun. Oh yes, this one this one will be this one will be a riot. <laughs> I haven't watched this one in a long time. え、世界を代表するDo you ever find yourself going to Amazon.com and uh, buying some record or movie or some stupid thing that two true freaks have been talking about so that you can catch up on it or you've been reminded of it or something? Well, now, how about this? Instead of going to Amazon.com, go to twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and follow our link to Amazon.com. When you do that, if you buy something over at Amazon, we get a little cut out of it which is awesome because we love money and it won't cost you a thing. Did you know you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf. And you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Libsyn is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Join our forum at forumforgeeks.com, where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook, too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook, too, if you can find me. Now available, Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. 
If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening, and join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True True Freaks. Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by Damanzo Corps of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U.